Welcome to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative, a podcast that challenges what it means to be a high performer. Here are your hosts, Lauren Williams and Rob Kalvaroski. We are live. Welcome to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative. I'm Rob Kalvaroski and we have Lauren Williams with us. Lauren, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm pumped to get this one on the road. Like we've been talking a little bit about this podcast for the last at least month or so. And I want to say like, I'm excited to bring this to people because I think there's a huge gap in what we believe high performance is and what's actually happening out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that in terms of the population that this could reach, it's absolutely insane. Um, You know, what is not being addressed out there? Um, it's such a common uh, misconception, too, that this isn't an important facet to take care of, whether it's in the industry or even in the health community. Um, mental health and, and talking about mental health, especially for high performers, is not addressed enough. So I'm really, really excited to get into this as well. Yeah, and I, I think like that's something that we've seen pop out lately, right? And we talked about this early when we, we touched base was like the Players' Tribune they've started putting out like, like athletes, like famous athletes are putting out stories about, you know, suffering from anxiety, suffering from depression. Like we even heard Dak Prescott earlier this year released when his, I believe it was his brother died. He said Mm -hmm. like he got depressed and he got slammed in a couple uh, press releases about, you know, this not being manly, or if you're a leader of men, you can't feel this way. And I just think like, welcome to 2020. Mm -hmm. Like we have to be better. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember seeing that initially and thinking like, wow, the courage that it takes for somebody like him to talk about this. But the reality of it is, is that that shouldn't be a courageous conversation anymore. Mental health needs to be normalized to the fact where if somebody talks about feeling depressed after the death of their sibling, we should look at that as completely normal and not have that narrative going on that we saw a couple days later in the news where someone completely took away all of his leadership ability because he opened up about the way that he felt emotionally. Yeah. It's, it's insane to me. And I think like for me personally, like I've talked about depression. I've, I've talked about my own depression for the last 10 years, suicide ideation, all that stuff. And what I've actually learned from sharing that story with my community has been this, deeper connection with them, deeper resonance with them. And actually they see me more as a leader now than they did before. And I think like Mm -hmm. people do not resonate with perfection because even if we don't share it, we know we're not perfect. And I think like, that's what this show is about for me. It's like, and, and, and like, it goes even deeper for, from that for me is like, I've been told by a psychiatrist that I was not depressed enough because I could get out of bed in the morning. And I think like that was something that resonated with me with you was you, you told me the story and we'll, we'll talk about it. But like, basically you were, you were a high performance athlete and you were doing all this great stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet like you were struggling with these internal battles and like, it doesn't fit the mold of what depression should be. Right. And I also think that that's another issue that we're running into is the idea that, you know, the mental health professionals that we see 
are getting stuck in this box of what it's supposed to look like to be depressed. And I think that's one of the major issues that high performers run into when it comes to, you know, feeling emotionally imbalanced or like you're not where you should be is that they go and they seek help and they're looking at, you know, the checklist of symptoms and they don't fit into them, but there's still something that's not right. But now they don't have that resource because they don't qualify. Yeah. And I've always found for me, when I like sought treatment, it was very much like, I'm a very extreme person. And I think like, like mm-hmm. when you know that, like, obviously like high achiever, high performer, whatever, but like very extreme. And my psychologist told me yesterday when I, when I said this to her, she said like, you have very strong managers. And what that means, I guess, in psychology is like, these managers are people that protect you from, you know, looking imperfect. And for me, that, what that meant was I would get up out of bed I would go for workouts, I would go to work and I was performing at, yes, it was a suboptimal level, but I was still mm-hmm. doing stuff. And like, I think what the the perception of what depression is or mental illness is, is like, you don't have these managers and you just like lie in bed all day, which I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I can say for myself, like, my own experience with mental health issues looked very similar to yours. I got up every day. I went to the gym. I went to school. I did well in class. Um, you know, went and played games and performed okay for the most part. Um, but none of that mattered to me because there was something off. There was, I couldn't place it. I didn't understand it, but it didn't matter what I did. I was not satisfied and I definitely wasn't happy. But then, yeah, you go in and you look at like, okay, well, what could be going on? And it's like, oh, well, maybe you're just in a funk. It's like, hmm, no, maybe I think that I might fit into more than just a funk, but I definitely don't fit into any of these huge categories. So then I ended up in a space at least where I was like, what the heck is wrong with me? which is definitely not the conversation that like we need to be having with ourselves. And like Lauren, like you work with a lot of high end athletes and like you saw yourself was one. And it's like, is this a common thing? Like, are we, are, are like, is that the narrative like funk? Like, like I know I never had that because like I went to a doctor and basically like I filled out an, a test and the, it was like really ironic because they give you a test, they print it off the internet and you fill it out. Mm-hmm. And like, I remember the doctor being shocked that I only was depressed. I didn't have any anxious symptoms. Like for me, it was just like all out suicidal. There was no anxiety. And, and like, I just like, I, I've never understood like, what does even funk mean? Like one thing. And then like, is this a common thing that people are like, people are getting told? Yeah, I mean, when I think about um, the word funk as it's used in sports, like especially in like hockey, for example, um, the word funk could mean like you're not performing to what you normally expect of yourself. So a hockey player who's in a scoring funk or like a little bit of a drought, it's just a term that's used to describe like you're not where you're supposed to be, which is fine when it's applied in the right areas. 
But I think it also gets kind of disguised as this like push aside, oh, it's just a funk, I'll get out of it on my own because that's what I do. I find a way to overcome obstacles by, you know, high performers set goals. They, they have expectations of themselves. But the reality of the mental health crisis that we're all going through and that we're all experiencing at higher rates now is that oftentimes the strategies that we rely on to get ourselves through other roadblocks doesn't work for this anymore. So let's talk about that. Like for me, the strategies that I, I had and they worked for me, like I, you know, I played on the U16, U18 national teams. I like went to MIT. I graduated with pretty good grades. Like these strategies that worked for me. And like, I'm not saying like, oh, it was just like amazing the whole time. Like my mental health was fine. I wouldn't say that it was perfect, but it was very much relying on just doubling down on work. Like just leaning into work, whether that's more swim sets, more in the gym, more homework, like more problem sets, like all this stuff was like how that worked for me and how I pulled myself through. Now, like, can you explain like, what are those strategies and like, how do they, or how come they don't work, I guess, in terms of like your mindset? Yeah. So when I hear strategies like that, and attach it to somebody who's a high performer, what I interpret that is, is that person is trying to convey to everybody around them and every, and like even themselves that they are doing fine. Because if you can make yourself look passable to other people to make yourself look like you are achieving the things that you should be, then they believe you're fine. And then you can say like, okay, well, at least I'm covered on that base. If I look like I'm doing fine, I must be doing fine. If I'm hitting my performance indicators, I must be doing fine. But it's that language of I must be doing fine that gets you into trouble because whether it's subconsciously or consciously, you know you're not okay. And you're compensating for that by throwing yourself into things that you can see a direct impact on. So that's when it gets really dangerous for me, because the more you ignore it, the more you throw yourself into those strategies that aren't going to work for you in terms of helping you with this issue, the worse it gets, the, the larger it grows and the more pervasive it becomes. Yeah. And I think for me, like I was leaning into the strategies that had worked for me has been like work harder, get recognition recognition makes me feel good about myself. And therefore, like, that's where I was getting the validation and the worth that I needed. And like the story that I, I've told before, but it's, I was working at this mining company, I saved them about $33 million in the first year, I walked into my annual review. And I was like, this is road to success. Like I'm expecting promotion. I'm expecting raises. I'm expecting like, Hey Rob, you did amazing. Cause like I put the stats on the stat sheet. Right. And what happened was actually the inverse. It was like, they pushed back on like, was it actually this much? I don't believe you. Like we would have figured this out if you were right. Like we would have figured this out by now. Like, how would you know? You're just like a new college grad. And like that was where I didn't get the recognition and it took me into a real dark place. And then I leaned into what I knew, which was like, 
I can just run and train my way out of my prompts. And it was like this very extreme behavior where you're like, I have nothing to train for, but I'm training two to four hours a day. I'm drinking. And then like, I even turned to get control on my diet. Like I was eating one meal a day and I lost like, like a ton of weight. And it was like, this is the extreme behavior that you turn into because that's all, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's that, that reliance on those external cues to tell you that you're doing okay. Um, and that you're, you're doing well is what gets so many high performers into trouble. Um, because at the end of the day, you can't rely on those external things. Um, the only thing that you can rely on is yourself and, High performers are uh, terrible for relying on those external cues because we've been trained and conditioned through the sports that we played or through the jobs that we've had, through parents, through friends, whoever, to look for those things to say like, oh, you're doing well. And it starts with school. Like you get graded. You constantly get feedback from a teacher who is external to you saying, this is the summation of your work here's a letter to slap on it. And you did well if you got an A or a B and you did not so great if you got a C or an F. And then when you look at it that way, um, yes, we need those external indicators, but when they don't work out in your favor, like what happened with you, for example, when you're like, oh yeah, did great. I'm going to get X, Y, Z out of this. Well, when that doesn't happen, because you ultimately don't have control of it, does it make you spiral? Does it make you totally devalue all of the work that went into it? Which is what happens for a lot of high performers. There was one thing I just wanted to nitpick there. You said B was doing well. And I just want to say, that's not what this show is about. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Lauren, no, absolutely. that's right. So, I mean, like maybe let's take a step back here and like, let's walk people through, like, what is a high performer to you? Yeah. So a high performer to me is somebody who's consistently looking to get better at something, whether it's perfecting their craft, mastering, whatever it is that they're, they're specifically working on is somebody who's setting goals for themselves, trying to find ways to improve their performance um, and ultimately always looking to get better at something. Yeah, I love that definition. And for me, like the only thing I want to just mention on this is it's like, I think it's, it's like, absolutely, it's about that. And I think like for me, I think like what characterizes high performers to me is like almost this extreme personality. And it's, it is those managers quote unquote that the psychologist says it's like having very strong managers that will make it look like everything is going well. And I think like, that's the real piece that I think is going to resonate with everyone in the audience is like, it can be super dark, but you're going to get out of bed it's going to be super dark. You're going to go to the gym or you're going to go to work or you're going to go whatever. And I think like that's the piece that I think separates a high performer from somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. It's, and I really like the term managers because at the end of the day, the reason why they exist is they're there because these high performers are trying to manage their state. 
Um, and some people would consider it like ways of compensating would be another way to look at it. But yeah, high performers are very, very good at managing. <laughs> and that's the thing, you know, I think that that's one thing that people don't really think about when they think about high performers is that we are really trying to compensate for something. And like, we've learned that whatever the thing that we didn't get as children, we will get from achieving something. And I think like, that's a piece where people don't see that. Like they see you performing on the field or on the ice or in the classroom or at your work. And they assume like, oh, this guy must be real good. But in the inverse, it's, it's actually like generally it means you've experienced some sort of trauma and you're overcompensating on it. Yeah, functioning off of deficit strategies for sure, for sure. Even if it means like it's giving you success in the short term or giving you success um, in the outward appearance of your life, there's, there's more than likely something fueling that that fire that is, is not the most sustainable thing or even the most healthy thing. So when you talk about sustainability, like how do we become sustainable high performers? Oh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> and I think the, what is really at the heart of sustainability is understanding your why, understanding your purpose. Um, and finding a way to fulfill yourself through um, intrinsic means. So not looking to, you know, fulfill your passion, your purpose, and to measure how you're doing in that by looking outside of you, um, which is, again, something that high performers struggle with because, well, and everybody really, because we're always taught to look outside of us, to compare ourselves to other people. Um, and even say like, oh, well, is my passion in life um, better or as good as somebody else's? Um, which is, you know, if it's your passion in life, it's your passion. If that's what makes you wake up in the morning and do work, then have at it and find a way to get there. Um, but yeah, I just mm, find a way, find your passion and find a way to measure it internally instead of looking outside of yourself. And I, that's like, that has been the biggest struggle for me, right? Is like this measuring of success. And even like, as I've sort of become more of who I should be, or well, not should be who I actually am uh, versus who I thought I should be. That's key. Yeah. Right. Like you put up a face of who you, who you should be and who I should be for me was like this very analytical guy, like, like an engineer, no feelings, very much like, you know, really leaning into how much money could I save my company or, or in terms of either growth or profitability or cost or whatever. And like, that was really my, who I thought I needed to be. And I think like what I have struggled mm -hmm. with in this transition period has been like, what should I look at as a measure of success? And I think like, that's a piece where, you know, like you're still trying to shed this high performer, high achiever, extrinsically driven type of person, because like, it doesn't really work. And like, at some, at some point it will fail us. And it's just a matter of when. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
the the heart of that issue is is what you said in terms of who I should be. Um, we from such a young age uh, get conditioned to believe that we should be somebody according to whether it's society, um, whether it's our parents, siblings, school peers, we get this idea in our heads that we should be somebody. And that language of we should be is debilitating in terms of it takes away from your own idea of who you really are and the values and the characteristics that inherently make you who you are as a person. And the further that we go away from those values and those characteristics about ourselves that are naturally there, the more dissonance we experience, the more um, you know, negativity we feel about the decisions that we're making, the more that we have to rely on those external things because we become a person who doesn't align with those values. And once you become a person who doesn't align with those core values that you have, then you have nothing internally to measure your progress, which is the whole issue. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's real hard. Like, I think it's really hard. And I think like even that question, like, who are you or who am I? Like, I didn't have a good answer for that a year ago. Like I, my answer to that was basically like my resume. It was like, I'm an MIT engineer. I'm a water polo player. I work now at whatever company. And it's like, that's not really who you are. That's like your resume, right? And I think like even just for mm -hmm. people listening, like if you can think about that answer, like you're probably not going to have it on a one-off unless, you, unless you've already done a fair amount of deep work. But like think about that answer for you and it can't be your job. It can't be your resume. It has to be, like what characteristics make up you? Yeah, yeah. It should that question should have the uh, the qualifier on it. If if your label is on your resume, don't say it, <laughs> <laughs> because there's so much more to you than the content of your resume. There's so many more other important facets of, you know, who you are as a human. And Susan, you know, my ultimate mentor, and you've worked with her as well always has this conversation of human doings instead of human beings. We become people that do things and, and that's how we define ourselves as opposed to who we are as a human being, which just leads us down a path of this, you know, it's never good enough. I don't, I don't know how to get internal. I don't know how to even think of myself as a human being anymore. I'm just, somebody who does things and who gets results. <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess Lauren, like when we're talking about, like we started this show, like why are we starting this show now? Like why is this disrupt or dismantling the high performance narrative? Why is it so important today? I think that this conversation is getting more and more important as you know, the conversation about mental health opens up more um, but specifically now, uh, we can talk a lot about, you know, the state of the world right now and what's going on and how it's limiting people and how it's really bringing the mental health conversation to the surface. But I think the main motivator behind this is that, you know, even though the conversation is starting to happen a little bit more, 
with high performers in mental health, I think that this population of people who outwardly appear to be doing great are so underserved and are still being underserved, despite the fact that the conversation around mental health is growing. Because people like you and me right now could still walk into a mental health clinic, not be able to check off those boxes and feel like we didn't have somewhere to go. Yeah, and I, I agree 100%. Like for me, I think the reason it's now for me is like, I think like our lockdown has really changed the way we do mental health. Like, and I think it's, it's in one aspect, it's harder than ever. Like my, my girlfriend, she goes to work every day for, you know, 10, 12 hours because she works at a senior's home and like she has to go to work and she has to deal with all that. And like, basically I'm at home, like for that same time alone. Right. And I think like a lot of people are home alone or they're, you know, or they're working in close proximity. Like the guys I work with, they're with their families at home and there's a different level of stress there. And I think like there's the stress mm -hmm. of having people around or there's stress of being alone, but either way, it's, it's really disrupted what we would call normal. And even like normal last year was like 20% a year of, of people experience mental health issues. And like, it's an astoundingly high number. Like I just got a message this morning, Edmonton has a campaign that they're running for mental health and it's called 11 of us and 11 people in Edmonton, which is a population of roughly a million people either attempt or commit suicide every day which is unbelievably high, oh right? And I think like the more that I've gotten into talking about mental health, the more that it's unveiled to me, like what a huge issue we have. Like in Canada, we have 4,000 Canadians die each year from suicide, which is like about 10 per day. In, in the US, it's, it's about 10 times that, it's about 40,000 a year. And like, we don't talk about this. And I think like, it's a problem that we can solve. And like the first step is like disrupting it and really destigmatizing that issue. Yeah. Yeah. And you hit on a really important part too, is that like our normal has changed. So, you know, we're all dealing with these ideas of what I used to do no longer works. So now you're getting into a whole population of people who um, especially for high performers, maybe we're functioning on deficit strategies before, but never had a brick wall directly in front of their faces saying, you cannot do this anymore. You need to find another way. And a lot of people aren't finding the other way because they've become so programmed to know that what they were doing is their only option. And, you know, I love the fact that the conversation is happening more and mental health is becoming more apparent, but people still don't understand how pervasive of an issue it is, I believe. Um, I listened to somebody talking the other day about how um, daylight saving time actually really impacts people's mental health because it gets darker quicker, you don't get the sunlight and you know, it just puts people into 
such a drab kind of mood. And somebody's response to that was, are you kidding? It's just the sun. <laughs> and that kind of response to me, it sets me off so much because like what we're stuck inside all day. And if you're working inside, you don't get to go out and you don't get to enjoy the daylight. So now you're stuck inside all day. Maybe before daylight saving time, you had an hour to go out and get some exercise or go for a walk. And that part of your day might have made your entire day bearable. But now you don't have that. <laughs> and you're telling me that, oh, it's just the sun that has no bearing on your well-being blows my mind. Sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent, but. No, it's, it's, oh. like, it's, it's an important conversation, right? And I think like I sent you an article yesterday about, I think it was called Let's Talk Program. And, and it's aimed at like mm -hmm. mental health in junior hockey players in Canada. And the, the quote they had at the beginning of the article said something along the lines of like, we're taught that emotions are weakness and we're taught that asking for help is weakness. And I think like mm -hmm. that is what we need to challenge with this show is asking for help actually literally takes a, a, a ton of courage. Like it took me about nine months before I walked into a hospital and said, I struggle with depression. I need help. And I think like that took a lot of courage to get there because, you know, you're, you're taught to just like sack up and, you know, like deal with it. Right. Uh, and it's like, I've heard so many of these things, like it's darkest before it's dawn or like whatever this shit is. And like, no, <laughs> it's, it's like, like how helpful is this? Like, you know what I mean? Like it's not helpful. And even the other one I really hate is the ones where people basically blame the victim of people who commit suicide. And they say like, you're passing along your pain to somebody else. And I'm like, you don't get it then. Like then you don't even have this conversation yeah. because you don't understand where I sit as the guy who thinks about suicide. And I just think like, we need to change yeah. that because that person does not want to be told that they're a burden. They need to be given the love that they deserve. Yeah. And I think so much of the conversation that even our, our generation is, is better. Um, but like our parents and their parents before them, that conversation was so ingrained in the idea that, um, you know, your mental health, it, it wasn't a thing. Like you were just who you were and you were doing what you were doing and mental health wasn't a conversation to be had. So now that we're talking about it more and people are, you know, keeping track of things like suicide and starting to figure out why they happen, I'm having conversation with even my parents about what you just said when people say people that commit suicide are selfish. I have to look at that and say, Number one, how dare you say that? But number two, what frame of mind do you think somebody has to be existing in where that is the only option? Why don't you try to live your life in that for about five seconds and <laughs> tell me again if you think that it's selfish? And having that conversation is not easy. And I'm known for making conversations at my dinner table a little deep sometimes. 
but like it needs to be had and it needs to be recognized for what it is, which is a broken way of seeing the world. And I think that this podcast has the ability to help people understand that number one, they're not alone, that they have a community of people who are experiencing the same thing as them, which can be one of the most powerful things ever. And that there is a place for the way that they're feeling. I love that. I love that. And that was the one thing that I like really wanted to touch on as well is that feeling that you're not alone. And for me, like when I received treatment for depression the first time, I took, you know, five or six different medications, different doses. They took me into a real dark place. I went to these group therapies where I didn't resonate with anyone because they couldn't get out of bed. I was told by my psychiatrist I wasn't depressed enough. I went to church. I went to life coaching. I never found what I needed and what it made me feel and actually gave up. I gave up trying. I just was like, no one understands what I'm going through. And that was the Mm -hmm. biggest thing. I like, I just shut off and I stopped asking for help. And like, I went probably another five years before I met Susan. And then like, when we started getting into it, what I found was I found somebody else that understood who I am. They understood what being this all or nothing high achiever type person is. And like, it wasn't like talking to somebody that didn't get me. And that's the same thing. I like, that's why, you know, I resonate with you is like your story about like, I'm achieving at these levels and like, I'm not feeling the way I should. It's like, I understand, like, that's the most like relatable story to me. And I I just, (laughs) that's the piece that I don't think people have right now. And it's like, you're seeing more of these Mm -hmm. athletes come out and talk about, like I heard one was like this guy won the world series and literally the next day he was like, you know, what am I supposed to do now? And, and like, I was sitting there going like, wow, this is a super relatable story because I've been there. Like when I graduated MIT, I was like, well, what's next? And like, when I won mm-hmm. a, won a national title, they were like, I was sitting there holding the trophy and I was like, well, what am I supposed to do now? And I think like, those are the right. types of things that, other people like us have experienced and yet like they're told that those feelings are invalid because, Hey, you just accomplished an amazing goal. You should feel great about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a huge problem um, in and of itself. And I think the reality of it is your story and my story are way more um, common place than we would even think. Um, And we're the people that are, are in tune with this stuff. And I'm sitting here saying that I think that there are way more people having that kind of experience than even I know. I just read an article um, from an NHL player. I'm blanking on his name right now, but he played for the Predators, um, got through college, was drafted in the first round. Like all of these things that for a hockey player is like, you're at the pinnacle of your sport. You are the epitome of a high performer. Um, And this this whole time he'd been living with OCD and had no idea that he had it because until it got to his breaking point, they were habits that were helping him succeed <laughs> because he was he was OCD about making sure that his like hips were healthy. He was OCD about 
you know, making sure that his equipment was in the right places until it didn't work anymore. And then when he met with somebody and talked to them about it, even he had this idea of like, there's no way I can have OCD if I'm functioning the way that I am right now. And he's still on the journey of understanding like what it means to have that diagnosis and what it means to have lived with it for so long. But it's just not as uncommon as we think. And the worst part about it is, is when you're a high performing athlete, especially, I'm going to frame it in athletes just because that's my experience. If there is something wrong with you physically, and I don't even like to use the term wrong with you, but there's something going on physically, you go to your trainer, you get help. If there's something wrong with schooling, you go to a tutor, you get help. But the moment that there's something wrong with you mentally, and I don't like sorry for wrong with you, you go into an office, you get questioned, and then you get deemed if you are fit for something. Like, do you fit in this box? Do you fit in this box? No? Well, then what am I going to help you with? And it's like, yeah, if there's something going on mentally that you're noticing, it should be as easy as walking in to go see your trainer to get help. Yeah. And I just like, like talking about Dak Prescott at the beginning, we'll just wrap up here is like, when he talked about his depression in March and April, because his brother died, they called him a bad leader. They called him not manly. They called him like all these things. But when his leg broke and he was carted off the field a few weeks ago, it was all sympathy. And it's like a broken ankle or leg or whatever he had is not a life-threatening disease in the United States where suicide is literally killing 40,000 people a year. And that's where, and like no one was challenging his manlyhood or his leadership when his leg was broken. And this is the same thing. And I think like, that's where we're going to go with this show is you're not alone out there. Mm -hmm. There's likely 20% of the population that's suffering right now, listening to this. And like, it's not weak to ask for help. You're not alone. We're all in it together. And I think like, that's why we're here. (laughs) Yes, this is the message. And can we also leave with the idea of if you're not mentally okay, then you're not going to function well where you need to be. So like take out the conversation of the broken ankle or a broken leg that keeps you from the field. If you can't get to the field, then you're at a zero sum start as it is. And, And I think that this conversation is so, so, so important in terms of not only establishing the fact that yes, you're not alone, um, that you know there is a community of people out there who understand what you're doing, but there is also so much work that you can do proactively to become okay. And, and to know that like whatever it is that you're doing, you're going to be fine and you're going to succeed because you're addressing these things. So just touching on that work a little bit, like Lauren, you are a high performance coach and you do this type of work with athletes and with other high performers. Like, do you want to just tell us a little bit about what you offer? Yeah. So as a high performance coach, I work with athletes to help them hone mental skills and mental tools that they can use to set goals, achieve their goals, 
maintain motivation, find confidence, and really find that that peak performance um, state that you know we're all searching for. We're all looking for that 10 out of 10. Um, but I do a lot of work with athletes in terms of like, yes, who are you as a person? What is important to you? And how can I help you get there in a sustainable and healthy way? Um, and, and really giving athletes the tools to say like, okay, this is what I want to go after in life. This is my passion. And here's how I'm going to get there. Love it. And if people want to reach out to you, where do they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, reach out to me. I'm always on Instagram. So at Lauren Lily 17, or feel free to email me, um, Lauren at elitehighperformance.com. Awesome. Yeah. So we'll, we'll drop the social media in the podcast notes, but you can follow Lauren on Instagram. That's where she's popular. You can follow me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm popular. And definitely like also follow Dismantling the High Performance Narrative on LinkedIn as well and subscribe to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative on your favorite podcast platform. We're not available on Apple yet, but you can get us on Google, on Spotify, and a few other platforms. I believe we're on seven platforms right now. And definitely, like, if you want to reach out to us, you have any questions, you have any comments, you want to whatever, interact with us. We have an email. You can send us an email, highperformancenarrative at gmail.com, and we'll definitely, we'll definitely love to hear from you. And yeah, for me, I mean... I'm not a high performance coach. I'm not going to pretend that I am, but I am doing a lot of work in in the industrial community for both uh, mental health and leadership. So if you want to hit me up, you can check out my website, robsreliability.com. And, you know, I offer some maintenance and reliability leadership consulting. We're doing a leadership group as well. And like, yeah, so there's, and then, or you can just hire me as a consultant in general. So there's that too. And then, yeah, like if either of us, we're both offering some speaker packages. So if you want us to come to your site or talk to your team or whatever, you can just send us an email, highperformancenarrative at gmail.com and we will, we will get to you. Yeah, absolutely reach out. I would love to hear from some people. So. Yeah, so there's a lot there for people to do. And, you know, coming up next week, And the week after, we're going to dive deeper into both Lauren's story and my story. So Lauren, before we get out of here, do you have anything you want to leave people with? Oh, my gosh. Oh, you are not alone is the biggest one. And sometimes taking the first step is the hardest. But once you take that first step, the doors are going to open for you in terms of the resources that are available and what you're going to learn about yourself and who's there to help you. So don't be afraid to take the first step. I love that one. And I'm just going to come off a little bit of that one is, is like, Mm. don't stop asking. Like, I think I cost myself probably five years of pain by not asking. And I think like, if there's it, it, it takes a lot to find the right help. And it's it's likely not going to be the first one, just like it's likely not going to be the first pill they prescribe you that's going to work. And I think like, take ownership of your own care and keep asking and like, don't give up because like, yeah, it just takes you in a real bad spot if you, if you give up. <laughs> so yeah, don't give up because you've got so much to offer the world. <laughs> 
Absolutely. So everyone, you know, we really appreciate you listening. Subscribe to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative on your favorite podcast platform. And we would really love it if you shared it with your teammates, your classmates, your workmates, your colleagues, your other high performing people, and definitely come back next week. We're going to have another great episode. So thanks for listening.